0: Said we were going out there and robbing innocent people. That's a fucking lie. That is a... spouse. that was the biggest joke I've ever heard. I never stole money from anybody who was a decent working person. Never. These guys were all fucking gangbangers, all dope dealers. Does it make it right? No. But they try to embellish on it and say, oh, this rogue group of officers, they were stealing from innocent people. Really? Who the fuck were the innocent people? Every one of those people were tied up in narcotics. Or they were gangbangers. One article said that we raided an old woman's birthday party. A grandmother's birthday party. Oh, yeah, it was a grandmother's birthday party. But it was being run by her grandchildren. They were all two, six gangbangers. And we fucking recovered a shitload of guns and dope out of that house that night. So, yeah, okay, it was grandmother's birthday party. But, oh well. It wasn't some fucking... Innocent lady fucking having a party with her 60 or 70 friends that were in her 80s and 90s. A bunch of fucking thug gangbangers were there, with long gone. We found semi-automatic rifles in the house, a bunch of dope, and we fought with those fuckers. Everybody went to jail, including grandmother. And everybody went to jail that night except for the dog, because everybody was fighting with us, jumping on us, biting us. So, oh well.
1: Welcome to Finnegan's Take. This is the life story of Jerry Finnegan, a Chicago police officer who had a monumental fall from grace and became the poster boy for police corruption in the early 2000s. In a city that does police depravity better than most, Jerry's story stands above them all because he was not your average cop. Jerry was a great cop. He was real police, as it's called in Chicago parlance. Jerry got illegal guns, drugs, and criminals off the street. And he did so at a prodigious rate, earning awards and accolades during his transcendence. Jerry navigated from inside the now-defunct Special Operations Section, or SOS, a squad that maneuvered freely within the borders of the city to combat gang crimes. The top brass of the Chicago Police Department loved SOS. Not only because the unit was effective, but because it made them look good to the bosses, the aldermen, and the mayor. Jerry's street smarts are considered by all I spoke with to be legendary. He had a sixth sense about crime and was fearless in his pursuit of stopping the bad guys. But this is no story of glory. It's a cautionary tale, chock full of conflict, and infused with the ever-present Chicago political machine. See, Jerry got greedy, cocky, out of control. Home invasions, theft, and a murder-for-hire plot placed Jerry and SOS under the eye of the state's attorney's office in the FBI. These series of conversations will be an unvarnished look inside the Chicago Police Department, but more importantly, it's the unvarnished look into Jerry Finnegan's soul. We cover everything. There's no dodging topics. Police brutality, gang crimes, machine politics, and all that Jerry encountered is laid to bear. And as you'll hear, Jerry has regrets. A lot of them. But he also wants to set the record straight. We start at Jerry's youth and end after his release from prison. Along the way, we cover the mysterious deaths of two of his brothers. Both deaths involve the Byzantine corruption of the Chicago Police Department. A few technical notes before we start. These recordings began in the spring of 2022. We stopped and picked back up in the spring of 2023. These conversations were recorded with me calling Jerry, so sometimes the quality is dodgy. But bear with us as it gets better in successive conversations. And one last note if you hate the police, love the police, hate Chicago, love Chicago, you're going to be offended. My intent was to pull no punches leave no stone unturned, and censor nothing. The language and stories are colorful, brutal, and not for children's ears. Thanks for listening, and I hope this conversation is enjoyable, but more importantly, enlightening. Jerry's story is how idealism and ambition melt in the cauldron of urban violence and then boil into self-destruction and corruption. So let's begin at the start the start of Jerry Finnegan's life.
0: My mom and dad had 12 children. I was number 10 of 12. My mom lost twins. She would have had 14 and came from 16. And my dad came from a family of nine. All my brothers and sisters were named after either my mom's brothers or sisters or my father's brothers or sisters except for me. I was named Jerome after a guy who my dad was in World War II with in the Navy in San Diego and in the Pacific. He was my godfather, although I never met him. My dad, take it from him, and he said he was a great guy. So that's who he named me after. My mom's mother and father emigrated from Greece. They initially settled in Geary, Indiana, had a big group community. They relocated there, eventually moved to Chicago when Geary started to change, and it wasn't conducive for them to live there anymore. It wasn't a safe area. So they moved into Chicago and my grandfather worked for the railroad and my grandmother opened up a coffee shop, kind of like a coffee shop, kind of made sandwiches and breakfast for people. My grandfather actually pretty much worked up to almost 70 years old doing hard work like that on the railroad.
1: Were your father's parents immigrants?
0: Ah uh, yes, they came from Ireland. His mother was originally from Scotland. My father, mom, and dad, my grandparents, met and immigrated to the United States, where they had a family. And it's interesting. My father's dad was a member of the Irish Republican Army and fled from that lifestyle and came to America. If he would have stayed there. Uh, more likely either prison or or death. He fled Ireland, came to the United States, went into coal mining south of Chicago, but eventually uh, took his life, that black lung disease. My grandfather moved to Chicago to get away from the coal mine eventually and they came up. My grandfather was doing various labor jobs. My dad uh, ended up going in the Navy at a relatively young age, probably 23 I believe he was. But he met my mom through one of her brothers. He was friends with my uncle, my mom's brother Jim. My mom was Greek Orthodox, my dad was Catholic but that make, didn't make a difference to my, my Uncle Jim because hung out his buddies and drank together. My grandfather and my grandmother did not like my father because he was Irish and he was Catholic. My grandfather in Greece, my mother's father was a, it's called a Fzone, which is a Greek palace guard. And when he came to the United States, he kept that sword that he had as a Greek soldier. And he chased my dad down the stairs with it when my mom introduced him for the first time. My mom and dad dated behind her parents' back And then they got married and she went off to California to be with him because he was stationed out there during the war before he was sent into the Pacific. They didn't speak to her because they, you know, she married against their will until they had my brother Bill, my oldest brother, their first child. And then my grandmother kind of gave in and then my grandfather came around eventually.
1: What was your father's rank and where did he specifically see action?
0: He was on a destroyer called the Taylor. So he saw some action in the Pacific. In addition to that, he attained the rank of uh, Chief Bolson's mate, it was called. When you see the war movies, they, they whistle, that they pipe people aboard the ship. Like an officer approaches the ship from a small craft and he comes up in the gangway. They blow that whistle and make that noise. This tune means something in, in, you know, in the Navy. And that's what he did. That was his job. He was also, after the destroyer, he was on a ship tender, it was called. He was in the Navy for nine years. My dad would always say, like every other guy that I met, every vet or kind of said what they did or they never really bragged about it or yeah I just I was in the service never really talked about it like I said, my dad and, and all his brothers and they just never talked about that stuff. To them, that was that was their duty, and and they were glad to do it for the country. And so basically, my dad moved back. He always wanted to, to live in San Diego. He wanted to be a policeman out there. He was not tall enough. At that time they had regulations that they uh, were strict on, you know, height and weight regulations, and he just was not tall enough. You know, you know these guys and women that I served with on the police department. That you know, my dad saw some of the people I worked with, and he just could not believe it. He was like, I, I couldn't get on the police department because of my height. Now, you know, what happened to that? And I said, Well, Dad, that's federal lawsuits. So that's what it's called. So,
1: How long were your parents in San Diego, and when did they bring your family back to Chicago? I don't even
0: remember how many years they said they were out there. But they did come back here because my dad said, well, if I can't get on here in San Diego, I know I can get on to Chicago because... His sister's husband was a big shot and ran the Teamsters in Chicago at that time, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. His name was Red Heinzelman. He was a heavyweight, a lot of political clout through the politicians because he was a labor guy. My dad went to him and said, you know, I'm taking a police test, and, and he said, can you look out for me? That was nothing to get a police or fire job or a city job, more so than nowadays. I guess he mentioned it to his wife, my dad's sister. He talked to my dad about a week later and said, yeah. You're not going to be a policeman. Well, why not? He says, well, your sister doesn't want you to be it's too dangerous. And you're a family man now, and you got to take care of your family. And he just told him, Mickey, my sister's not going to tell you what I do for a living. I'm a grown man with children and a wife. He said, well, I'll make you a fireman. And my dad's like, you can have it. I'm not interested. And he regretted it because he probably would have made a good... Fireman too. My dad always wanted to be in civil service like that. So it was unfortunate. He didn't make it. He was a tough guy. He was a boxer in the Navy. Did real well and never saw him do anything, but I heard quite a few things about him from my uncles and how he could handle himself.
1: What did your father end up doing
0: for work? He became a painter. I would come across a lot of guys that worked with him. And were very complimentary of his skills. He took pride in his work and did a lot of stuff. Worked in the Hancock building, a lot of downtown, the Marine City. Did a lot of stuff in there. And he was doing pretty good. Then his father passed away and that was it. Started drinking. And I guess he liked it. He was drinking more and more and then basically became an alcoholic. Very difficult. He took his father's death hard. He found solace in drinking. He was a great guy. I love him. I miss him. Do I wish he wouldn't have drank the way he did? Yeah, sure. Caused a lot of issues. For him and my mom, it caused a lot of issues for us. Growing up, moving from place to place because he was out of work, so it was a difficult life.
1: Would you describe your family as like Leave it to Beaver, a nuclear family?
0: We did have days where we would sit down when he was home as a family. and He basically told us what he wanted, expected, as far as behavior. Treat everybody respectful on the street when you're out there. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. You call them by their last names. And he used to tell us all the time, a lot of friends out here and are going to keep an eye on you. And if you do something wrong, I'm going to know about it. And my brothers and I would be like, yeah, whatever. He's not going to know about it. And then, sure. The minute we did something, we broke a window one time in the school and got home, and boy, he was waiting for us. I don't know who told on us, but apparently somebody did. It wasn't one of my brothers because we were all together. Uh, When we got home, we had to help pay for it. Not in the sense that he he would beat us. He never did, ever. A beating by him was uh, getting your sideburn pulled or your ear pulled or the back of your hair pulled. Never punched us. Never slapped us. But that was enough. Get lifted off your tippy toes when someone pulls your sideburn. It's not pleasant. I would say, was it a normal life? At that time, I probably thought it was normal. My mom and dad were living together and a lot of my friends and his younger friends. They only had one parent. Even in those days, father died or mom died or the mom and dad weren't living together anymore. My dad pretty much during the week was home. On the weekends, he was drinking. He would go to the bar. It would be way past our bedtime by the time we came home. So it was trying.
1: What were your high school years
0: like? I went to high school. I started in Chicago and then we moved to Las Vegas because my dad ended up getting a job offer. It was a lot of fun growing up there. My dad, I would say that was the most normal life I lived with him. He would drink, but we did a lot of stuff together. More so than I had ever encountered in my whole life with him. He was happy because we were living pretty good. But yeah, Las Vegas, and it's funny because we met some good friends out there. Uh, I actually, I used to go by these girls' house who one of my friends was dating. They ended up marrying one of the sisters. And their father was the assistant chief for the Las Vegas Fire Department. They had two out there, Clark County Fire Department and Las Vegas Fire Department. And he was the deputy chief for the Las Vegas Fire Department. And he wanted my brother Greg and I to join the Mormon Church. That was the first step. And then after that, he was going to ensure when we became firemen. And I told my I told him we were sitting there one night and he was having a couple of beers, this guy, Skrlack was his last name. And I, I said, Mr. Skurlach, I don't want to be a fireman, I wanna be a policeman and and you know he just started laughing. He goes, What the hell do you want to be a policeman for? People shoot at policemen. They don't shoot at firemen. I told my brother a couple of times, you know, we talked and I said, we should have stayed out there. I said, You and I could have been retired from the fire department by now.
1: This window of time in Nevada seems to have been about balance. Your family was settled, your dad was working. But you and your siblings talk your parents into returning to Chicago?
0: I kind of got homesick for Chicago. My dad and my mom decided to move back there because they caved in to us because all of our family members were back, their brothers and sisters, besides the four boys and my mom and dad. So they caved in to us because we kind of convinced them, let's go back, let's go back. So we ended up going back there. and We probably should have stayed in Vegas, unfortunately. You know, my dad, uh, you know, I, he just... You know, he was working side jobs or he worked projects that came along. I don't know. You know, I just don't know. The alcohol just like really got a good foothold in him after his father passed away. He was drinking heavily. I know he took it hard. And it's interesting. I don't know a year I got to find out really to talk to some of my older brothers and sisters, but he took his father's passing really hard. And then I heard one of the stories that led to that was they used to go to Wakanda. That was their favorite place. They'd go up to a place called Cook's out there. And it was a beach. And they had a little restaurant and a bar there. And all of his brothers and sisters, and they'd all gather out there. And I was too young to remember this. But I guess they were all well with my grandfather, all of his sons. And they were on top of this uh, floating pier. And they were playing like the King of the Mountain type game. And they kept throwing each other off. And then they were all ganging up on their dad. And they threw him off. And he didn't come back up. Finally found him. They kept going down, going down, all his sons, including my dad, and they found and brought him out, called the fire department back then, and of course, emergency medicine, not like it is today, This in the 60s. So they were able to revive him. He ended up probably dying within a year because he had that black lung, and it just really aggravated that condition. I'm sure that weighed on all of his brothers and him, because his dad didn't live much longer after that. I don't know if you blame himself. He had some incidents in his family where he lost uh, one of his brothers committed suicide because his daughter died in that Our Lady of the Angels fire. My cousin, who I never had the privilege of meeting because she passed away before I was born, she was a student at that school, was on the west side over there. It was on the Evers off of Iowa. So the school started on fire, and the nuns, from what I've read, and uh, these are from uh, students who survived. I gave the account that the and ordered them to stay there and pray at their desk. But some of the kids didn't adhere to that and they left. My cousin Pat, who was her brother that survived, told the story that she wore her mom's coat to school that day. And it was a brand new coat, so she went back in to get the coat. She didn't come back out. But it ruined that neighborhood, literally. But my dad's brother committed suicide because he blamed his son, who was, you know, it was ridiculous. He was a fourth grader for not helping his sister and saving her. The whole neighborhood was ruined. They changed the fire code throughout the United States because of that fire. In schools, public buildings, it was instrumental in changing the fire code. But it's interesting because I would later work in life for a captain who became a commander a wonderful guy. And I was in his office speaking to him one day, just BSing a fire or something. And, and I looked, he had a picture of a guy standing there with a fire helmet on. And I'm looking, I'm like, Wow, oh, that's interesting. I said, is that your brother or you? He said, that, that was my father. I go, oh, you're kidding. He said, no, no, my father was a fire lieutenant. He said, worked right here. you know, Right here on the west side, right off Chicago Avenue. I said, wow. So that was the extent of the conversation. And then when I read that book, To Sleep With the Angels, I found out, in fact, his father was the first fire engine on the scene. It was an engine company. Lieutenant was a single engine company. And he was the first one there. And he was crucified by Commissioner Quinn, who blamed him for a lot of the deaths because they said his actions. He should have fought the fire, or vice versa, rescued kids instead of fighting
1: the fire first. That's an unbearable burden to carry and be accused of.
0: Yeah. It's the first engine company I've seen. You start calling in the alarm, and they were coming from all over. It came from the far north side, the far south side. It was like a huge, huge fire. It ruined a lot of families, broke up a lot of families because of that, caused a lot of drug abuse, alcoholism, and then I ended up working for a sergeant who uh, Rich Kearney, he was also a student there. was there that day, so he remembers it distinctly.
1: So this touched your family indirectly. It certainly had an effect on, on your father.
0: He had to identify her. His brother uh, couldn't bring himself to go there, so he went to the morgue and identified her. She was burned beyond recognition, as most of those kids were. They were identified by dental charts and, and dental identification. Because of, but my dad, he's got to go identify his niece, even though know, maybe he'd see her every day. still his brother's daughter.
1: This must have been something he repressed and did not
0: talk about. No,
1: no. Your mother was the glue of the family. Is she working while raising you? Is she religious?
0: She converted to Catholicism for my father. So she was, both her and my father were involved in the church. They went to Mass. We went to Mass. Then when his father died, I don't know, it's just like, didn't seem like he was too interested in in going to church anymore. My mom made sure that we prayed every night and she would talk to us and kind of tell us how to be good men, to be uh, respectful of everybody else. And... Uh, my mom was a very strong woman and she put up with a lot with my father, but she never left him, never talked bad about him ever to us or that I'm aware of it to anybody else. Uh, th- that just didn't happen in those days. She had 12 children with him, but it was difficult and it was hard on her because she worked a few times and my dad was disgusted about it. And he told her she's not working and she's said, Well, oh, work, I'm going to work. Not secretarial work or anything. I mean, just. All of her brothers did quite well for themselves. Sometimes her brothers would give us money for like new school clothes, food, and stuff like that. My mom would never tell my dad because even though he was an alcoholic and even though he wasn't working, he was kind of hard-headed and he had his pride about him, which is funny when you think about it because, I mean, how much pride can you have when you're not working? That was the way he was, and he was kind of hard-headed, so wouldn't take any handouts. My mom always threatened to go get public aid. And he always, he told her, you get public aid and you're going to have the hell to answer when you come home. So he never hit my mom.
1: Tell me about the time you moved to Texas and worked on an oil rig.
0: When I left high school, I went with my friend Ronnie and Donnie. We went to Texas. His brother went down there because his brother-in-law was down there working for a drilling company, an oil drilling company. They actually went down there a few weeks before I did. And they said, listen, come down here right now, These jobs like $16, $17 an hour in 1981. I said, yeah, I'm going to go down there. So that was the start. They kept raising you up once you learned some of the stuff that they had to do. And they started, basically, it was just like maintenance of the rig. And then sometimes you had to change out the pipe, it was called, change the bit, the drilling bit. So I did that for about eight months and lived in the Texas panhandle in a town called Canadian. And that was a different experience. Because I was a kid, you know, I bought, I bought my first car, two-year-old Trans Am. For me, that was a huge, huge thing. Probably would have stayed there, but they moved that particular company I and workforce, Harrison and Cochran, they moved that rig to Montana. And 800 people in Texas was enough for me. I wasn't going to Montana. So I ended up going back up to Chicago, living with my sister for a while. And then I was unemployed. So I understand she had a family, and my brother-in-law, and they have children. I actually was kind of homeless. Didn't really want to rely on anybody or burden any of my family members. So I just didn't know what to do. I was actually contemplating joining the military, and I just said, eh. So I was trying to find some decent work. I didn't really, at that time, I didn't know anybody to get a job with the city or ComEd or something. That's the way it worked. I ended up leaving my wife. She talked to her mom and dad. They took me in. And it was incredible because they treated me like a son and, you know, not like her boyfriend and eventually her husband. They treated me like their son. It was totally incredible. I was out of my sister's. I hate to say it, uh, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, but uh, I didn't tell them, my sister or my brother-in-law, but I was living in her hallway, farewell, going down to the outside because no one ever accessed that. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was hanging out, sleeping in the back stairs or the wood stairs. I'm not college educated, really didn't have any job skills or anything. So I was like, eh. So I was kind of looking for jobs, get ready for work or whatever. And you're living in a hallway. It was a little difficult, but started dating Jane and I was fortunate enough to in her, but she ended up telling her mom and dad. And then I went there and her dad pulled me aside and said, I want you to stay here. So you don't have to sleep in the hallway. And I kind of was embarrassed. And I said, no, 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 you know, but they're gone now. Both of them. He, he died young, 57. I worked for Joel for 21 years. Hard worker, great father, great family man. Just incredible. And my mother-in-law too. Wonderful, wonderful woman. Fed me and, and uh, let me sleep there on the floor with a sleeping bag and blanket. It was Very kind of him. I ended up getting a job at the merchandise mart. My brothers were down there working in a trade. Somebody was looking for kind Of a laborer, kind of an apprentice to do carpet and tile. They introduced me to this guy, Maury Evans, and I ended up going to work for him. I hated his guts, and it's funny because after working there for a year, I absolutely loved him. He was a bull of a guy. Bull, just no stomach, bull of a guy. I would be, I mean, I'm a kid, I'd be walking with him to get on the elevator in a merchandise like, market to go up and look at a project, one of the showrooms. He'd say, Suck your stomach in fat, but he had like an accent. He was from down there, it's called Momento and he like, suck in your uh, stunned dear fat boy, in front of all these women and stuff. And I'd be like, I'm going to kill this dude, man. He'd scream at you if you did something. He had no, like, reasoning. He couldn't talk to you and say, listen, don't do that this way next time. Or if you have a question, come and talk to me about it, and I'll show you how to do that. He is screaming at you in front of, you know, 100 people walking around in the, in the, the showrooms. And he's screaming at you. you know, like, he, he could sense that I was kind of getting tired of it. He kind of pulled me aside one day, took me to lunch, and he's like, I want you to stick around. I know I ride you, but I like you. You're a good kid, blah, blah, blah. Got to know him as a person away from work. Just realized that at work, he was just kind of a hothead, but a completely different person away from work and invited out to his house, his wife, and she ran the business with him and just good people on it. And, and actually invited him to our wedding his wife and him after that became good friends the guy he ended up dying of cancer it broke my heart because i i mean i literally lo- loved him like a brother you know how many times i wanted to punch you in your mouth and he laughed I told him i said i love you man you're the best dude i you know one of the you know you gave me a chance i, I was down on my luck couldn't find a job and i said you're a great guy man i love you and i appreciate everything he done for you And creating killed me when he died he died young to a cancer and When I told him that I was flying to the police department and I was going through the process, he kept saying, he'd tell people, you know, we encountered on the building different people he knew and go, This is Jerry. He's not qualified to be a carpet installer, so he's going to be a cop. (laughs) It was amazing.
1: Your father did not want to take any aid or government assistance because of his pride. Did your family talk about politics? Did you discuss current events, the political environment in Chicago, the crime, state of policing? My experience as a youth was no politics in the House. My parents were apolitical. But, but what about yours?
0: My mom and dad. Well, my mom, I'm not so sure. But my dad was a staunch Democrat. And then I never could figure it out, to be honest with you. I even asked him later in life, I said, Dad, uh, what did they do for you? Well, what do you mean? I said, at one time, we lived in Bridgeport for quite a few years. And I said, uh, you know, the 11th Ward, I said, they never helped you. I never asked them for help. And why not? Because I didn't want to ask them for help. I'm not own on anybody. So I had that conversation with my brothers uh, later in life, when we were probably in our 30s, and I said, do you realize that the opportunities that Dad had, they wanted him to work for the ward, like as a police captain, and those guys all get rewarded. There's some work and time involved, but they all get jobs. They get city jobs, or county jobs, or state jobs. The Democrats run all in the state, which most of the time they are. So for the most part, he never wanted to be indebted to anybody. I do hold that against them because you make your own way, on the other hand, but there's nothing wrong with a little help in the hand. Because I know many of my friends who ended up with city job because their fathers were city workers or they worked for the ward doing precinct work.
1: I want to get back to something. Your father's a staunch Democrat. And you take issue with him not taking advantage of the Chicago political machine.
0: It was extended to him. Well, let's be honest. The Irish ran the city at one time for a long time. So, uh, you know, our last name was Finnegan. A lot of the guys that my dad rubbed elbows with in the bars, they offered them, come on down to the ward office. Come over here. We'll take care of you. We'll get you this. because you that. And my dad never took them up on those. And I know these for a fact because these guys would, I'd hear conversations from these guys talking to my dad when I'm standing there as a kid. In that respect, I do hold that against them. Because he could have done something for himself, and he probably could have helped us, too. We moved up to the north side, and that was Ed Kelly. And he ran the park district. He was a committeeman. And he, actually, George Dunn was in the same ward, I believe. It was the 42nd ward. So he was the Cook County uh, Board President, George Dunn. This guy next door told my dad, Dad, you want to introduce him to Ed Kelly, who ran the park district? I said, Bill, I want you to come up there. I remember distinctly hearing the conversation. My brother and I were standing there. The guy's name was Bill Curran. And he said to my dad, Bill, I want you to come up there. You're a good guy. I like you. You got a family. We want to get you to work. Come up there and meet Ed Kelly. He's a great guy. and You'll get along well with him. My dad never went. It is what it is.
1: Had the booze taken over by now?
0: The booze had definitely taken over. He was unemployed and it was hard. It was hard as a kid. At that age, what choice do you have? You're not 20 years old where you can go on your own or 21 years old. So you're moving from place to place and, it, and it's difficult and it's embarrassing. Even at that young age, it's embarrassing. What do you say to people? So it was tough being a new guy all the time in school.
1: Were you getting picked on at school?
0: I never was a troublemaker, never looked for fights or anything like that, but didn't back down from them. I never, never had an issue with people trying to pick on me because my brothers and I stuck together. Or We're not going to have an issue. And a couple of my older brothers, they weren't going to put up with that. That wasn't the case. It was was embarrassing to move from place to place. My brother Greg and I went to a high school out in the south suburbs, and we were there a short time, but we didn't have a ton of money. So my mom bought one gym suit you know, when you go to high school and they have the, the name of the team, my brother Greg would have the recess two periods before me. By the time I got there and got that gym uniform on, it was like I was in the shower, soaking wet from him sweating, running around. I went to my counselor. I said, yeah, I don't need gym. And he's like, What's, what are you talking about? What's going on? Well, I was embarrassed. And I finally told him, I said, yeah, my brother Greg and I wore the same gym uniform. And I said, by the time I get it on, it's like in a shower. That's how wet it is. And he laughed, but he felt bad, and he said, "I'm not laughing at you. Yeah, I'm, I just, it's a funny story." He said, "Stop at my office later this afternoon before you go home." So I went in there and he gave me a brand new gym uniform.
1: Is you're maturing? Are you looking to become a cop? Is it something you aspire to be?
0: When we would play cops and robbers at that time, I was always the cop. Always wanted to be the cop, and I was fascinated. Every time I see a cop on the street, he'd want to stop it, and he'd be writing a report. I'd stop, strike up a conversation, whatever. Sit in the car, and talk to him, and tell him I wanted to be a cop, and for the most part, you know, they know you're a kid and they want that positive reaction and they, they want that positive interaction with, it, with a kid to let them know that, oh, yeah, that's great. It's an act. But I, I always wanted to be a policeman.
1: Are there media influences that also push you towards wanting to be a cop, like movies or TV shows or books that you've read? Of
0: course, I watched TV show like One Anim 12. Who didn't watch that? And then Dragnet, which I later laughed in life because it was one of the most hilarious shows. And the script was the worst. I love those shows. I love those movies. And... There were a couple movies we went to the show and watched, like Wamba's movies was that the show, and we got in, and we weren't even supposed to be in there at that age, but called The Choir Boys. I later read the book, but the movie was quite entertaining, and The New Centurions with George C. Scott, Daisy Keech. And my dad used to tease me about that all the time. He, I was on the baseball team, and then I ended up quitting Little League, and he goes, you, you know what? You, you have a infatuation with a uniform. You just want a uniform. You don't want to play baseball. And then I was in the Boy Scouts, so I don't know. Maybe it was the uniform, but...
1: Was there a discipline to policing that you were lacking in your household that further enticed you to be a cop?
0: Was no, there... I, I don't think so. Because although my dad uh, was an alcoholic, he would sit us down and, and, and talk to us about doing the right thing. On a lot of issues, not so much. We never had that conversation like about girls. That's all learned on the street about women and having sex and all that. That, never, that conversation never occurred with my father and us. And my dad was, you know, a straight arrow. He just, and he told us, it doesn't belong to you. You don't touch it. You don't take anything that doesn't belong to you because it's going to lead to a problem. You lose people's trust or even worse than that, you embarrass yourself and embarrass me. Or it you lead to worse than that, you're going to have problems with the police. So he was right in that sense. I feel that my dad... Not only instilled fear in it, instilled the morals in them not to, to take anything that didn't belong to you.
1: Do you have a global sense of crime in Chicago at this point of your life? What is your perspective about how dangerous the city is? How dangerous your area of the city is? What's your mindset about crime in general?
0: When I grew up in Bridgeport, you get in fights with kids, you know, when they're growing up. It doesn't make a difference what neighborhood you live in. You hear like, you know, oh, so-and-so got stabbed or he got shot. Someone got killed and they're like, that's terrible. You don't think in the area of Bridgeport I lived in, back then, it's just girls could walk around at 4 o'clock in the morning and not worry about their safety. And if something did happen to them, then it was solved very, very fast. What do you mean? There were people killed in Bridgeport in when the story came out, there was, this was involved, there was a domestic or this person was doing something they should have been doing, but if a normal person or like, for instance, a young guy or a young girl was killed, they would dig into it and they would find out why, for the most part, not always, depends on who was involved in it, depends on who did the killing. There were some killings that, were, that occurred in Bridgeport that were never solved. Unfortunately, because people involved in the uh, cases were uh, connected to somebody. As far as a uh, sense of neighborhood being dangerous, anywhere can be dangerous. But for the most part, it was very safe. People would sit out on their porches or be out in the parks till 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning.
1: And what is your opinion about the Chicago police at this stage of your life? Do you feel the police were a
0: force for good? The police were really the last line to defend in this city and everywhere else in the nation.
1: That concludes the first conversation of Finnegan's Take. Stay connected by following us so you know when conversation two drops. Thank you for listening, and here is Refraction Three from the album Lux Refractions by Lossell, courtesy of Scott Morgan.